How's everyone finally format then? Um, only, only an hour and 15 minutes of me dicking around trying to get the laptop to work. I mean, yeah, that's just the old format. Well, what great there, content yeah. we've recorded. <laughs> what great content. Welcome to another edition of Films on Trial. I'm Gav. I'm Alex. I'm Dave. And I'm Austin. Oh, and this week, we continue and conclude our very short, very niche, very mini spooky season of 70s Southern Slasher films as we put the 2022 horror slasher X on trial. Is it the X Factor or is it X in the City 2, the movie? Uh, essentially, will this film be placed on our esteemed hit list or our steaming shit list? But before we go on to the trial, let's talk about the last film we put on trial, which was the 1973 horror classic, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Dave, you judged that film and you deemed that it should be placed on the hit list. You've since gone away, you've watched the film. What do you reckon? Did you make the right call, yes or no? Yes. Yes. I'm happy with the call on that one. It does belong on the hit list. There was enough innovation to it. I know it started a lot of genres, a lot, it started a lot of cliches as well, but it's a very innovative film of its time. It's still a very influential film of its time. I mean, the film we're doing today, X, is heavily influenced by Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So I think for all the all of its strengths, yes, it's definitely on the right list. There are flaws. You know, they're absolutely right. The prosecution was quite right. There are a lot of flaws to it, but I think you can overlook most of them uh, in favour of its strengths. So, yeah, you know, I'm I'm happy with that. I suspected I would be, but even after a rewatch, yeah, I'm, I'm happy with that goal. Good stuff. Thank you very much for that very thorough summary there, Dave. Uh, so now on to the trial itself. So all of the roles have been picked out of the hat at random, and all of today's insults are descriptions of 70s sexploitation X-rated films from daysdigital.com. Okay. Uh, I had to just quickly check where I got them from for a second there. But yeah, yeah. It's from daysdigital.com. So acting as defense and trying to get this film placed on the hit list will be me. And I'm just like the 1965 film Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. Initially written off as a mere throwaway with little artistic value whatsoever. And acting as prosecution and trying to get this film placed <laughs> on the shit list is Dave. And Dave is just like the 1974 film Debbie Does Dallas. He has an enduring appeal, which only intensifies when you hear the backstage stories of conspiracy theories and mafia funding. <laughs> <laughs> I will take it. I will take it. <laughs> now, just like real court advocates in defense and prosecution will be making the best case for their roles. These may or may not be their real opinions, though, so do stay tuned until the end of the episode to hear what they really think. And in the role of judge who has the most important role, they have to decide which list this film should be placed on, hit or shit, based solely on the arguments put to him and not their own opinion. It's going to be Alex. And Alex is just like the 1972 film Fritz the Cat. He's a radical socialist who fights racism and sings protests. Uh, so I, th I thought, 
about including more about what Fritz gets up to in his spare time, but nah. I'm happy to say that's where the comparisons <laughs> end. I haven't seen the film. I'll Google it later and I'll tell you what I think. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, Ozzy, you're around and about. You're not going to contribute, and I think you're just here for uh, <laughs> just something to do. Uh, and I haven't actually created an insult for you, but I'll, I'll do one off the top insult- of my head. So that was insult enough that I, <laughs> for the last few years, <laughs> not contributing. <laughs> uh, you, you said it, man. You said it. I also looked up Fritz the Cat, you fucking psycho. <laughs> <laughs> What is wrong with that? I had that on here on DVD. Some, I bet no, I, I'm, I'm sure you did. Yeah, yeah I so bet you watched it when you were like five. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Like, I, I, I gave you reviews from a very credible source. Then I could have gone really, really, really low ball on this, and I could have. You, sorry, th- th- uh, thank you, Gav. I, I always like the way you're basically <laughs> asking for the thank you. No, like, thank you for not destroying me with your insults. Thank you for just being like mildly insulting. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, now, uh, before we get started, I think that we should probably give the audience a bit of a better understanding as to what this film is all about. So let us spin the wheel of impressions. <laughs> so uh, it's uh, landed on a uh, question mark, which is uh, judges' pick. So what we do here basically is we read out the synopsis of the film in the style of one of the cast or characters from the film. So as it is landed on Alex, Alex, it's your choice. Who would you like to read this? The synopsis, synopsis out as? Aussie, um, you just sat there. I'd like <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you work in Aussie. You want me to do the synopsis of X? Sorry, yes. yes. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Aussie's just trying to get on with his work there. Yeah. <laughs> I'll pitch okay, up, say hi. Any, any particular style or just as me? Uh, yeah, what style did you read out? I mean... Porn actress? Porn actress. <laughs> Mid-film? Knowing, knowing Ozzy, he's going to put all of his weight behind that and it's not going to be <laughs> suitable for airing. So, <laughs> what uh, about... Or maybe Deep South Texas, you know. Yeah, yeah, similar to last mm-hmm. week, sort of like Deep South Texas. In 1979, a group of young <laughs> filmmakers set out to make an adult film in rural Texas. <laughs> but when their reclusive elderly hosts catch them in the act, the cast find themselves fighting for their lives. <laughs> very good, very good. I have been the best one I've ever done. I think you being surprised into it, you know. I don't know who that was, but I'd listen to that guy do audiobooks. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, without further hesitation, Dave, would you like to please kick? Oh, no, sorry, Dave. Alex, would you like I to please not. kick off proceedings? Yes, I would love to. Right. So, uh, X, don't know anything about it, to be honest, apart from it, you know, being sort of based on slasher exploitation films and it being sort of set on a on a in, in a sort of porn film thing i think so apart from that i know pretty much next to nothing inform me gav okay i will do so the year is 1979 and a crew of adult filmmakers travel to a remote texas town determined to revitalize the adult film industry give it a shot in the arm or so to speak 
And the uh, again, I thought you were going to say I, something else. <laughs> I, I knew you would. I knew you think it. that I'd go low, but I didn't. <laughs> Take a back shot in the arm and, uh, and create a new kind of genre almost uh, with their film, The Farmer's Daughter. So the crew, including aspiring actress Maxine, played by Mia Goth, arrive at the remote cabin in rural Texas that they have rented from creepy owners Howard and his wife Pearl, who is also played by Mia Roth. Mere goth, sorry, in a dual role. Very, very good use of makeup, by the way. You watch this and then you watch something like The House of Gucci with Jared Leto in. And you're like, no, this is this is how you actually create a new character using makeup and prosthetics. Anyway, and uh, and then anyway, the crew get to work on the film. However, as the steamy shoot commences, so does a violent string of gruesome murders as one by one the crew fall foul to the hosts. And Maxine eventually starts the fight back. Now, this film is brought to us by Ty West, who I think is probably one of the most interesting voices in horror working today. He brought us the very brilliant House of the Devil, um, sort of mid-2000s, and he followed it up with the really intriguing and, in my eyes, equally brilliant films, Innkeepers and The Sacrament. Since then, since sort of like late teens, uh, noughties, he's worked a lot in TV horror on shows like Scream and Them. And this is a sort of big return to horror films. And he absolutely delivered. It's very similar to House of the Devil in that it's filmed incredibly well. It's set in the 1970s. And you think, you strongly believe that you're watching a 70s film throughout. Uh, if you were to come across this while you were flicking through channels one night, you would easily assume that it was made in the 1970s. And uh, similar to House of the Devil, it's a really, really great blend of creepy, undercurrent of malevolence and then these shocking over-the-top violent scenes it's very well regarded amongst critics and the horror community like it's fun it's tongue-in-cheek it's it's horror with generous dollops of comedy and x certainly marks the spot for this treasure oh very nice flourish there gav you get an extra an extra 10 points there fantastic <laughs> all right well Dave, you know, creepy undercurrent, it's very accurate. It's sort of, it's got its own aesthetic. It sounds like it's absolutely nailing that aesthetic. It uh, does seem interesting, you know, not just a, a film set in the 70s, but shot in the 70s way. Um, just to be clear, we do know who the killers, we know that, that the hosts are the killers throughout the film, yeah? Yes. Yeah, right. yeah, we're, we're showing that very clearly. Okay. And, uh, you know, and it seems to be jumping between this sort of creepy undercurrent, what's going to happen to this over-the-top sort of slasher gore. So, I mean, it seems to be doing exactly what it sets out to do, Dave. What's your issue? What's your beef? Tell me. Um, I have a few a few issues with it, to be honest with you. Um, the first one I'm going to question is good use of makeup. Terrible use of makeup. I thought it was horrendous makeup they used to make up Mia Goth. The dual roles thing um, I'm going to come to first. Yeah, Mia Goth playing dual roles. No, she's a very good actor. And her performance is, is fine, I think. The makeup is a bit distracting, and it just seems a bit gimmicky to have her playing dual roles. There's no real reason for it, and it kind of just gets a little confusing. The makeup's not really good enough. You're very aware you're watching Mia Goth play herself under, like, a pile of prosthetics. Um, at first, when I was watching that, I thought, is there going to be some sort of supernatural element to this where Maxine turns out to be, like, a younger version of Pearl? And is, there's no, no, nothing like that at all. There's no supernatural element. They just use the same actor to play Pearl, the 
the slasher, the villain of the piece, and your your final girl, Maxine. And I'm not really altogether sure why. Um, you know, they're the, the played by the same person, but with none of that, none of the uh, supernatural elements I was partly expecting. I was also expecting her husband, Howard, to have been uh, one of the other characters as well, because he's shot from behind throughout the whole thing. You never really get a good look at his face, and I'm not sure why they did that. I assumed it was because it was someone else in prosthetics. No, it's a completely different actor called Stephen Yeur, um, who, who, yeah, has got nothing to do with the other. So it's some very curious aesthetic choices there. The dual role, uh, we'll go into casting characters later, I'm sure, but it, it showcased Mia Goth's versatility as an actor. She is a very good actor, um, but it doesn't really showcase much else. In hindsight, it seems like it's just a gimmick to get people talking about the film. You know, and apparently she spent about 10 hours in the makeup chair, and that's seriously the best they could do. You know, I, I approve of the film. It only had a budget of $1 million, which is, is pocket change for making films today. I really am impressed with, you know, them doing a low-budget film, but uh, maybe they could have had a whip round and, and raised a bit more money to get some proper makeup on the go. Because, yeah, for 10 hours, that it, it just wasn't worth it. It wasn't the payoff. They should have or just hired an age-appropriate actress for the villain. Um, so, yeah, I'm not sure. Very curious choice as to why they did that. And, yeah, as a film, yeah, I think it's actually shot well. I'll concede that point. I think Ty West, he knows how to frame a shot camera work it's all very good it all looks very nice the aesthetic is is fine i guess i don't think it's really got built its own aesthetic as such i wouldn't get carried away on that point um it very much borrows from films pre prior like gav said this is very much a tribute film it's a love letter it's like he said it was critically praised and if you read those reviews everyone's calling it it is a love letter it is a tribute it is an homage it's all these things those words are just peppered throughout every review um, and yeah, while it is clearly trying to do that, you know, it wears its influences around its neck. It doesn't really break away um, from those influences and doesn't really uh, uh, go off and on its own path. Even casual viewers of horror films will understand that this is clearly a Texas Chainsaw Massacre nod. And, you know, it's, but it, it doesn't stop from being anything more than a tribute to slasher films. And someone's like, you know, a tribute to exploitation films, quite why, why we're playing tribute to exploitation, I'm not quite sure, but that's what Ty West wanted to do. Um, but yeah, it's, it's nicely shot. I, I'm not sure he quite achieved everything he set out to do with it, though. It was supposed to have a point. You know, it's a, it tries to be a slasher with something to say, which is what the Texas Chainsaw Massacre was. Uh, you know, not many films, not many slasher films, I should say, have themes at their core, but both of these do. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, however, had something to say about social decline, economic hardship, uh, facing the forgotten deep south of America. Exes themes aren't really as poignant. It's more about aging and the loss of beauty and things like that. And the real problem in the film is that the film's not anywhere near as clever as I think it set out to be, as that it thinks it is, or that it needed to be. The thing you've got to remember about this film is it was filmed back to back with, I say back to back, simultaneously. While they were making this, he was also making another film to be a prequel to this, he was making Pearl, which was released around the same time, uh, both featuring Mia Goth. Now Mia Goth is a younger version of Pearl from the older film. Now it makes sense. But what you'll find is a lot of this film doesn't make sense without you having to go buy a ticket for the other film he made. And I think that's really where this film starts to fall down. Once I read into the film... Um, and once I learned a bit about what the prequel's about, I got to, I started to understand a little more what he was trying to do. But the film alone, X on its own, doesn't explain nearly enough about the themes that Ty West was going for. It doesn't explain enough of his decisions. Um, 
you know, I had to really do some homework to properly grasp what it was he wanted to show us here or what he wanted to tell us. I shouldn't have to do that. Not for a standalone film. I, I understand that he made a prequel at the same time that will explain everything for us. And I just honestly, after watching X, I don't know that I care enough to watch that prequel. So therefore, I think X kind of falls down as a standalone film. You have to go and watch another film or do some reading around the subject to understand what Ty West was getting at here. And I don't think that's anyone's fault. I just think when you're that close to your project and you're making two films back to back, you forget that you haven't properly explained something in one film because you filmed another scene that does explain it, but it went in the other film. And I think that is where this film ultimately falls down. All right. Thank you, Dave. Uh, yeah. Some, some, some big points being brought up there. You know, you did say that, you know, she plays the heroine and she plays the, the killer, but yeah, Dave, Dave sort of raised a good point. Why? What's the point in that? Why not just have a, an actress for each? Is there any point to that? And also, you know, um, this film doesn't make sense on its own. I'll have to watch two films. You know, I think that's a big point. Do, does X make sense in and of itself? Yeah, it, it does. And it's important to note that this film was made as a standalone film and then COVID happened and that when um, they kind of got together to actually do do the film, they, I think there was a period of quarantine that the actor and the uh, the actors and the director had to kind of wait until they could start shooting, and they were kind of they used that time constructively, and they spoke more about the the, the characters and the film and the detail in more sense. And, and from those conversations, they were like, you know what, we've got so much more that we can explore here, and they wrote and created the sequel as well. So it wasn't a case that they kind of decided to do two films at the same time. They had one standalone film that they'd written that they'd, they'd edited, that they were happy with. That was their finished, polished product. And they decided, as a bonus, while they were all together, that they were going to do the prequel as well and add more context to it. So it's not the case that, like, kind of, you watch one film, you don't know what the hell's going on, you've got to watch a second film to find out. It's a case that if you want to explore more about that film, you don't have to wait too long until it's come out because they've already filmed it. So what Dave was saying before, some of the themes in it, yeah, that old sort of, like, getting older and sort of um, kind of that, that there is a bit of, 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 of that and in that you have this character Pearl who is really sexually adventurous however she's got considerably older <laughs> since the since the prequel but she still has desire and she still has needs um, but she is essentially trapped within an older body, so she feels like she can't explore that. Her husband is is unable to explore that because he's racked with uh, medical issues, which means that you know he either is in pain or he can't get aroused in order to satisfy his wife. And then all of a sudden, you've got this group of young, attractive people working and having sex on their farmhouse, and it reawakens all these desires within her. And, uh, well, she can't handle it and she goes uh, a bit uh, stabby. <laughs> but I think that Dave said before that this film doesn't have a lot to say. And I would I would strongly disagree. On the surface, Dave's right. You know, this is a just this is a rural gothic in the same vein as slashes like Last House on the Left or I Spit on Your Grave or Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the film that we did two weeks ago. But it is much more than that. And you know, as Dave said, there's themes of getting older and not being able to sort of reconcile, I suppose, with 
what you feel and what you can actually physically do. There's also more to it. I really like the twist on the genre itself. Rather than having a killer who bumps off sexually active sub-characters with the chaste final girl surviving as if it's some sort of like not-so-subtle moral commentary on losing your virginity, here we have not only all of the characters, including Maxine's final girl, are more than sexually active, but the antagonist, initially who appears to be the sexually sorry sexually repressed, pale clutching, timid old lady, then turns out not only to be the unhinged killer, but even more sexually vicarious than the filmmakers. Uh, but I feel the film the film is is a very good pastiche of seventies sex exploitation films through the guise of a seventies X rated slasher film, and. You know, these films, contrary to what Dave was saying before, I think really, really pushed the boundaries. So at the time, there was a complete shutdown. There was bans. There was protests. There was people who were blackballed from the industry. There was death threats. There was all sorts. And perhaps this film here is a a backlash to, uh, sorry, a commentary on the backlash that these types of films received at the time and perhaps the hypocrisy of certain conservative or evangelical communities at the time. Then there's also like a subtle commentary about race in America at the time where Howard, the farmhouse owner, treats Jackson, the black star of the film, very cautiously and considerably differently to how he treats the director of the film as well. Uh, But I also believe that West is also commentating on politics today. The farmhouse belongs to this old hermit couple who spend their days listening this fire and brimstone preacher who denounces the ways and the sins of the youth today. And then all of a sudden, the dangers that they've been getting warned about on a daily basis are now frolicking freely in the couple's cabin at the bottom of their farm. And I don't think it's a leap to believe that the director is perhaps commentating on some of the political and religious extremism in America at this time, especially at the time that it was made as well, and how after 50 years, in some parts or in some certain mindsets, Unfortunately, not that much has changed. So I think it's I think it has a lot to say, to be honest. Uh, but it's it, it it's not just a case that you kind of it's got its themes and it's got its points. It also explains them and displays them incredibly well. Well, Dave, a lot to unpack there. It does have a point. Um, you know, it does it the other film pearl adds more context, but it doesn't mean that you need to watch it to understand X. And it seems like there's actually quite a lot for a for a sort of slasher film, there's quite a lot to sort of get into with, you know, even ideas of race and politics within the film. Quite, quite a lot, considering it's just a sort of a, a slasher horror. Yeah, um, it, it's kind of a weird one. I mean, I, I disagree that, you know, what with Gav was saying about these young, attractive people coming onto their land and this awakens desires and sends them a bit stabby. They were already stabby. You know, when General Ortega gets locked in the basement, she finds the body of a drifter whose photo has been on, like, missing posters and stuff that you've seen. So they were already killing people. They had nothing to do with the sexual desires being awakened. They were already stabbing. They'd already ditched his car in the lake, which is what Jackson finds later in the film, and had his body suspended up in, in their basement. So it had nothing to do with these guys arriving. You know, the actual reason why Howard and Pearl go murderous is actually never really properly explained. Maybe like, he was it, a, a fit hobo? Uh, he wasn't. He had a very good body. He was in. Yeah, he's, he's in decent enough shape, to be fair. But it's never really explained as to why they went stabby. You know, Gav's theorized about it, but like I just said, it's not these people turning up because they were already killing before that. And if you look at, well, apparently in Pearl, which I've not watched yet, but um, in Pearl, apparently it goes into more detail about their younger lives. Um, 
and explains it a bit more. But again, you've got to go to the second film to get your answer. Um, you know, you, you get more answers from the second film, Pearl. A number of critics actually did suggest that on their own, X and Pearl were nothing remarkable. Put the two together and then you've got a finished film. Then you've got answers. Then you've got context. Then you've got themes that are actually nuanced and properly explained to the audience. Split them in half and you've got so you're missing part of the picture. You, there's something that doesn't quite work here. And I think that is the problem with making your sequel to at the same time as you're making your first film. I think you need to separate them. You need, first of all, not to assume that you're going to, you've got a hit on your hand. You sort of but wait and see, will I get this finance? Will I be able to make this second film? Is there enough demand for people to want to watch a second film about this rather than just assume, but also it should complement your first film. And with this one, he's made something that complements his first film a little too well insofar as they feed off each other. They need each other to exist. And the first film should be able to exist on its own without the other one. That is the issue I have here with this. Um, so, yeah, I disagree that it, it's not explained why Pearl and Howard go killing. Um, it's it's never it, it's hinted at that it might have something to do with sexual desire, but it's never really explored. And it doesn't quite make sense in terms of the hobo you find in the uh, in the basement. So I disagree with that. And I think a lot of, yeah, it, it's a lot of it is very on the nose. You know, there's bits, the themes for some reason seem to be quite subtle and you'd be forgiven for letting them pass you by. And yet there's other things like one of the, fa my favorite terms from one of the reviews was Chekhov's alligator. Yeah, brilliant. Which, <laughs> I've, I've written the same thing here, to be honest. Chekhov's alligator, yeah. Where basically Mia Goth goes for a swim. There's a rubber alligator. It's a terrible looking alligator. Oh, a rubber alligator in the oh, it's awful. Uh in the in the river there. And she like swims to the bank and it's behind her, and nothing happens, nothing comes of it. It doesn't she doesn't even see it. It doesn't get nothing comes of it whatsoever. And then later in the film, uh Britney Snow gets pushed in the water and there's all this thrashing and screaming, and it's like, oh, that must that'll be your alligator. Chekhov's alligator. If you show it in the first half, someone's really? gotta get eaten in the second. 100%. Um yeah, so, but I think yeah, there's points that are just very unsubtle, and then there are points that maybe should have been hammered home a bit. They were a little, little too, uh, little too niche. And I think that's the problem with this film. I think that he was too close to this Ty West. I think he's got an ambitious project here, in terms of making a slasher film that does have themes, that does have something to say. There's no doubt this film has something to say. I'm just saying it's not uh, eloquent enough. Sure. It's not explaining itself properly. It's uh, and it's falling short for me uh you know and there's other there was talk of comedy at one point in some reviews but like, oh it goes from you know horror moments to to moments of great levity and you know really being funny i didn't find it remotely funny i would find stepping on a nail in a barn barefoot <laughs> funnier than this film and as far as the scares go and the horror element i'm gonna say that there are no scares there's a wow. creepiness that the, the film starts with I agree with Gavin. He says there's a there's a kind of a creepiness that begins, you know, especially when you see like Pearl looking through the window watching them film. Sure, but it, there's no scares. There's no jump scares. There's no real horror moments apart from the excessive gore, which again I'm glad Gav mentioned because I feel that does go against the classic films of of its age that's trying to pay homage to. People seem to have forgotten that one of the things we praised and that a lot of other people have praised about Texas Chainsaw Massacre is the fact that gore was actually quite thin on the ground. It was more suggestive violence than it was ramming it down your throat or ramming a pitchfork into your eyes. Whereas in this film, it goes hell for leather and it's just gore and it's unsubtle and it's on the nose and it's just... It, I feel there are other things that he could have paid tribute to 
that people liked about the nostalgic elements of old slasher films that he's missed. And these are key points about these films that he has missed. And he's he's paid tribute to the wrong bits of the films. Gav, uh, pretty damning stuff all the way through that, especially when we're looking at the horror. You know, it's on the nose, it's in the eyes. Yeah, It's not, but it's not scary. It's just sort of just that over gore that we've talked about in many, many, many different films. I mean, mm-hmm. you, know, you, could, you could forgive, you know, it seems like we're having a debate about the different themes in the film. But at the end of the day, this one's got to deliver on its uh, horror and its slasher elements, does it? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, just like to just come back very quickly on a couple of points that Dave Please made do. there. I, I feel that you don't really need to over-explain things in, in films or, or the reason why somebody's doing something. I mean, if you look at Texas Chainsaw Massacre, there's no like sort of massive explanation as to why Leatherface has been chopping people up and keeping them in his, his freezer. Dave mentioned last week, one of his, you know, favorite, uh, more recent horror films, Terrifier or Terrifier Two, I should say. Um, th- there's no explanation as to why Art the Clown goes around killing people, and I think that some mystery is absolutely fine. To be honest, the idea is that, uh, you know, we have glimpses of why they're doing this, and we have like subtle hints and whatnot. And you know, like my interpretation is that they're sort of like sexually repressed; that she can't kind of, you know, she's a very sexually active woman who is maybe trapped within the body of an elderly lady and her husband can't satisfy her. So that's why she kills uh, a homeless guy. And that's why she torments these, well, firstly, she tries to kind of um, proposition a couple of them. She tries to, you know, like kind of come onto them a little bit and they, they're sort of like horrified by her age. So they push her away. And I feel like that kind of amplifies uh, the, the reason that she she you know goes a bit stab happy, um so so yeah so that, that that's that point uh, I would uh, and and also another point that Dave mentioned there about you know kind of highlighting the the gore and the shock value of these films like it seems to uh, forget that Texas Chainsaw Massacre was unique in that it stripped everything really back and it su- had a lot of suggested violence and a lot of suggested gore whereas like classic. Uh, exploitation films, X-rated films at that time, went very over the top with this type of stuff. And I think this is like a great homage to those films because it's doing that. But it's also bringing something new in that sort of like creepy, subtle building horror that I mentioned before. I would disagree with Dave about it not being scary or not being sort of uh, horrific at points. I think for the first part, especially Ty West, he's a master of creepy and subtle horror. Uh, building and building and building and then suddenly being juxtaposed with bursts of incredible violence and gore and we get that in spades here or, or you know as Dave mentioned before pitch, pitchforks more precisely uh, and one thing that I really loved about this and I'm going to have to massively massively disagree with Dave is the scene in which Maxine goes for a swim in the lake we get this beautiful overhead shot of her swimming back to the platform she's a little way off and then we see this alligator swimming behind her uh, it's a long, sort of drawn-out scene. The alligator is getting closer and closer. The tension within that scene was absolutely brilliant, and you saw, and like it keeps on cutting back to Maxine sw- swimming close up, and then overhead view, get, see the alligator getting closer, hair getting close to the dock. She gets to the dock eventually, the platform. She's safe, but she doesn't pull herself out initially. She just casually waits there. Another overhead shot of the alligator. This is like really, really building tension, and uh, and then you know she finally gets back onto the onto the platform. And the alligator moves off, and she's completely unaware. 
that scene, the way it's filmed, and the way that like he just lets it build is superbly done in my in my view. And it also sets us up for, as Dave said later on, the best jump scare for me is the old Chekhov's alligator, in that Bobby Lynn, the porn actress or one of the other porn actresses in this uh, film, or I should say one of the adult film stars. Uh, sees Pearl out and about in, in the night and she thinks that she's wandered off. She tries to accompany and help her back to the farmhouse. Pearl turns around, pushes her in the lake and then, you know, this reaction where she's in the lake and she's like, what, what, what the hell are you doing? Why are you pushing me in the lake? And then bang, the alligator bites her head. Brilliant. And that is like, it's a brilliantly horrifying scene but it's also not too gory. We do get best of violence later on. Some of the deaths are very, very inventive, very gruesome, especially on the small budget that they had. We get Wayne's death, you know, pitchfork through the face, RJ's death at the hands of Pearl, whilst the car headlights are highlighting him and the spatters of blood going all over the car headlights. And then once again, it's a beautiful shot where the light turns from sort of this sort of glowing yellow to this red while the headlights are soaked in his blood. It's very, very good. You're, you're, and... you're a complicated man, Gav, when you say things like that. <laughs> you frighten the piss out of me when you say things like that. It's expertly built. 20 years I've known you and you just keep saying stuff like that and it's more and more, <laughs> more, and more unsettling. But please, it's a film, do. it's a film. You might win this argument, but you've, you might have lost a friend. Continue, continue, continue with it. <laughs> I, Dave mentioned about comedy. I think some of the comedy is in the gore as well. So later on, we've had uh, Jenna Ortega's character, Lorraine, has been confined to the basement. She's been trapped there. She's been trying to escape. She's uh, had violence inflicted upon her. She tried to escape at one point, and she had, uh, as she opened, pried, pried the door open, there's a great scene in which Howard returns the owner, and he hits her with an axe and severs one of their fingers. Um, and she finally, <laughs> it's very well filmed, is what I'm trying to say. Maxine helps free Lorraine. And then um, instead of like working together and escaping, Lorraine, who is obviously very anxious at this point, blames Maxine for everything that's happened to her. She goes to run out the door and bang, she's shot with a shotgun by Howard. But like that sort of, that surprise, that shock, I think is quite funny in the way that it's done in that, you know, like you kind of have this, this build-up of like, oh, you're going to have this this heroic scene where they're both going to work together and they're both going to overcome the the evil villains. And then she's like, no, fuck that. I'm going off on my own. So she runs off on her own and then ends up dead like that. And then also Howard drags Lorraine's body back into the house. Lorraine's, <laughs> Lorraine's, Lorraine's dead at this point. But she lets off like a, like a um, I don't know, a bit of gas escapes or she makes like a, a body twitches. Howard's, is even though he's the killer, is so shocked by that he ends up having a heart attack, and he dies. And I think once once again, that's funny. It's not like a case of it's like usual. This is all this is all, <laughs> this is all hilarious stuff. I'm I'm, I'm writing down some serious notes here. Yeah, this is yeah. Well, you know, it's it's, it's 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 horror comedy in the same vein as sort of like Tucker and Dale versus Evil. Yeah. You know, that sort of like laughing at the. Uh, basically laughing at people who have died in horrific ways, and, and at so the end as well. Howard the killer dies from shock of one of his victims farting. Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> no, she doesn't fart. I think she she uh, body convulses and he goes yeah. like, oh! She's, and then, and then she yeah. spasms and then he's like, oh! And he okay. drops his shotgun and yeah. heart attack and dies. Yeah. And it's not remotely funny. 
It is. It is. I'm, I'm just going to I'm gonna put it out there. None of, I, I reiterate I mean, my point. This film is not remotely you, funny. You, you didn't need to really put the nail in that, but I'm, I'm glad you did as well, Dave. But, yeah. but like, later on as well, you know, we've got Pearl, who's the big killer here, and Maxine confronts her. Finally, she's got a shotgun and she goes to shoot her, but there's no, uh, the, 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 there's no bullet in it. And then, Max, uh, sorry, um, she goes to shoot a normal gun. Maxine goes to shoot a shotgun, but the force of the shotgun sends Maxine flying out of the farmhouse. Pearl, lands, it sends Pearl oh, flying Pearl, out. sorry. Yeah. So Pearl shoots, uh, tries to shoot Maxine with a shotgun. The force of it sends her flying out of the farmhouse. She lands terribly, breaks her hip, and she's lying in the middle of the road. And she's like, oh, my hip. And uh, Maxine just gets off in the car. And as she's driving off, she's like, fuck this. I'm gonna," And she runs her over. And once again, that is... It's a a slide whistle at that point. Yeah, yeah. It's the old Bond slide whistle. (laughs) Once again, you know, it's not like... I'm, I'm not saying that this is... Doctor Strange love. What I'm saying <laughs> is that it is it is funny for for the, you know to have those moments of levity in like a film, especially at the beginning when it was this slow creeping tension. To have that at the end, it was quite refreshing. All right, I'm starting to feel like I'm getting to grips with the the film as an entirety. Uh, I know we haven't dipped on cast a lot, but you know, is there any sort of if you can sort of build cast into your final arguments and any last points you would like to have about this film and Dave by all means come back on anything Gav said there Am I starting? Please do Yeah, um, one thing I just before I go into cast I will say on Gav's points the uh, surprise elements there is no element of surprise to this film everything was very predictable when General Ortega is going for the latch trying to get out before she gets her hand hit by Howard's uh, shotgun it, you know what's coming, it's like she's going to get she's way too far away from that latch she is going to get her hand bashed she is going to lose a finger or something. You can see it coming a mile off. When RJ is confronted by Pearl in the driveway in front of his car, one of her hands is hidden behind her back. It's like the first thing I would be saying, I've got to, what's in your other hand? What is in your other hand? And it's like, that is the first thing you're thinking. Sure enough, he gets knifed in the neck. It is predictable throughout. There is no shock element to it because you can see what is coming a mile off because we've seen it before. As for the cast, I actually think the performances in this are fine. I actually don't think there's anything wrong with the performances. I think Mia Goth, like I say, it makes. It, I don't understand why Maxine and Pearl had to be played by the same person. I don't get that. But I actually think that her performance is fine. The makeup is not. The idea, the premise is not. But her performance, you know what? Mia Goth can act. Fair play to her. I thought Britney Snow was actually very good in this. I liked, I'd never seen Martin Anderson, who plays Wayne before, in anything. But you know what? He's not half bad. Scott Muscudi, who plays Jackson, otherwise known as Kid Cudi. Um, I'm always wary when musicians have a go at acting, but you know what? He's okay. He's not bad at all. He does a fine job with this. A lot of the cast I feel are underused. Jenna Ortega, I really do like, and she's basically just in the background for the first half of the film. Then she gets a sex scene, and then she just spends the rest of the film screaming and crying. It's a waste of Jenna Ortega, to be perfectly honest with you. She can do better than that. And this is the problem I have with the film. It's not the performances per se, it's the characters. The characters are stock characters. There is like very little personality you can assign to them. There's disappointingly got a little going on between beneath the surface here. I know that characters in slasher movies aren't necessarily known for their depth, but I feel it's a bit of a cop-out to make a contemporary homage film to like a bygone genre of cinema and allow the flaws of that genre to permeate your cinema today. You know, this is something that has been fixed by horror. You know, 
two-dimensional characters, characters that just scream and cry when there's something going on, you know, characters that are just there to be cannon fodder and die in unimaginative ways. You know, this is something that has been fixed. And I appreciate he's trying to do love letters, he's trying to do an homage, but this is a flaw that had been dealt with. And I feel like we've backpedaled here. And I feel like we've slid backwards down a hill. There is no reason for these characters to be so poorly written. And I think that although I have a problem with the script in terms of the storyline, I think the story is very poor. Uh, I have no problem with the dialogue. Even though I don't think the characters are well written, I think their dialogue is believable enough. I will make concessions on that one. But yeah, ultimately, when it comes to the cast here, although it's not the actor's fault, I think this uh, they could have spent a bit more time working on this script in terms of fleshing out the characters more maybe telling us a bit more about their backstory uh, without shoehorning it in you know you got this weird bit where jackson and howard are like looking for pearl uh just before howard shoots jackson and it's kind of mentioned is like, oh i was a marine in vietnam and there's very little reason for that to be thrown in there nothing comes of it because he gets shot moments later but it's like maybe a marine in vietnam would have been a bit more careful about you know not being shot by a guy with a gun but it's like it makes no sense why they shoehorn that in other than to remind you oh this was the 70s by the way because we're talking about vietnam again it's like oh yeah 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 it is the 70s isn't it there just didn't seem to be any good reason for that to be there so yeah although i've not got a problem with performances or the actors i have a huge problem with these characters it doesn't sound like there are any characters gav indeed no i would disagree i i would you know it's similar to Texas Chainsaw Massacre from a few weeks ago, you know, I, I would be lying if I said that the characters were massively developed and massively fleshed out, but they are more developed than Dave's given them credit for, and they're more developed than this type of film you'd give credit for as well. As in, it, you know, this is a slasher film. I usually have a number of supporting cast members who are there mainly just to be cannon fodder, but I think that there is a lot of development there, Jenna Ortega's character, um, Lorraine, essentially she starts off as this really sort of mild, meek sound operator that the crew called Church Mouse. And she puts herself out of her comfort zone by appearing in the film as one of the actors. Then she gets captured by the family. She tries to fight back. She has a bit of a breakdown. She ends and dies. You know, like there, there is a development there of her character. Um, and Mia Goth in the dual role, I've got no problem with at all, to be honest. I, the, the makeup isn't anywhere near as bad as Dave's making it out, to be honest. But I like how you've got this sort of like contrasting characters. You've got Maxine with a dark past, you've got this farmhouse owner, Pale, with an even darker past as well. And Maxine is running from something you don't know what. She's perhaps lacking a little bit in self confidence and self belief, which is then she develops throughout the film. Um, she develops by being in the adult film, firstly, as a performer, and then she develops self-belief later on when their survival instincts kick in and she brings the fight back to Pale. Um, as for Pale, she's mysterious, she's menacing, she's deadly. She definitely goes from mild and menacing, creepy and subtle to overtly terrifying with great ease. You know, she, I think the Goth does a fantastic job here. And I also think that this has been a bit of a star-making role for Goth, who has since gone on to headline two more really well-received horror films in quick succession, Pale, as we've mentioned before, and also Infinity Pool. And her performance was wildly applauded by the horror community as well. And as Dave said, it's if you have a, a weak or a weak character, one thing that can make them much better is by having a really good supporting cast or a really good actor playing that role and that's what you get here you've got Kid Cudi who Dave mentioned before really really good 
um, and did everything that was asked of him. Brittany Snow, who is no stranger to horror, uh, but you might be more familiar with her from her lighthearted works as like Hairspray and Pitch Perfect films. She plays strongly against type here and she fits so comfortably into the horror genre as well. It's really impressive just to see how adaptable she is. But at the end of the day, this is Mia Goth's film, both as the protagonist and as the antagonist as well. And she does a fantastic job with those characters in this film. All right. Thank you, guys. I do feel like I've, uh, I've got everything I need now to bring down the judgment on X. In the meantime, I'd like to entertain you all with a quiz I've made, if that's okay. Yeah, please. Yes. Please. All right. Okay. Thank you, guys. Yeah, this is a quiz all about over-the-top deaths in horror films. I've tried to stick it to slasher films. Dave, as it is Dave and Gav, I feel like you've got a chance here. I feel like, Gav, you, you will get a fair few of these, but mm. it's it's more who's going to get them quicker. All right, you ready? Okay. Jesus. All right. In which film does a woman get vertically cut in half with a hacksaw? Vertically cut in half of the bam, it's a terrifier. It is terrifier. Well done, Gav. She does get uh, cut in half. I haven't actually managed to make my way through that scene. Um, in which film? It's very good. <laughs> it's funny. It's funny. It's <laughs> <laughs> funny, funny death. It, actually, this one I have seen and it is pretty hilarious. In which film does a man get his head punched off his shoulders? Oh, it, uh, that was funny. Demon Knight. <laughs> uh, I, well, no, actually, no. I'll give you. I'll give you a bonus point now. That's not. That's not the one that's on my sheet. <laughs> uh, he's uh, a boxer. He's boxing the antagonist, and finally, when he's all tired, oh, out, oh, the antagonist okay. is, punches his head off his shoulders. Is it uh, Halloween Resurrection? Uh, not Resurrection. Is it one of the Halloween films? It isn't. It isn't. I'm. Uh, I, I'm going to say uh, a, a, a draw on this one. It's Friday the Thirteenth Eight where uh, uh, Jason yeah. Voorhees, if you haven't seen it, do watch it because the guy's really, really going for Jason Voorhees. And at the end, he punches his head off and it's just so obviously a mannequin's head. It's, uh, <laughs> absurd. It is more of a niche one that I didn't know, but it's come up on the, uh, you know, on, on famous horror deaths. On which one does someone just jump on a raft full of people and kill everyone with hedge clippers? Oh, um, hedge clippers. Sounds horrendous. I have no idea. Is it like it's, um, Slumber Party Massacre? No, I love the way you know all these films. No, it's called The Burning. Have you seen it? Oh, no, I haven't seen it actually, but now you mention it, I do know the poster from it, which is literally like she is a gloved hands covered in I blood. Think she is uh, yeah. a, a feature heavily in it. <laughs> Who gets launched out of a mattress as huge amounts of blood? Uh, oh, um, um, Johnny Depp. Oh, go on, sorry, Dave. It's Johnny Depp and Nightmare on Elm Street. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that was worth five points, so well done, Dave. <laughs> uh, who dies screaming in a cat flap? I've given you a clue there. Um, that is, uh, it's the name Tara uh, from Scream. Um, is, is it Tara? I can't remember. It's the one played by Rose McGowan. Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I forgot there was a cat. I remember getting caught in the garage door. I forgot there was a cat. Flambo. It's. I was thinking it was Marv in, in Home Alone. <laughs> it's uh, somehow sticks with you that cat flap one. It always like terrified me that one out of everyone uh, the most. 
who dives from their lips, their backside, and their breasts uh, exploding? Lips, backside, and breasts exploding. They wish for better lips. Oh, yeah. Is it? Is it? Is it like Wishmaster? Um, no, I two think closer. Oh, okay. Leprechaun three. Leprechaun wow. three. He explodes a woman, basically. Goodness. Uh, at what point uh, in which film, and I can be a bit clearer than this, uh, does it, does someone get stabbed with a shotgun? They don't use the shotgun in the conventional way. They stab them with it. Okay, uh, from Dust Till Dawn? No, it is one of the Halloween films, and it's just after a terrible Halloween film. Uh, I mean, how dare you? It's Halloween 4. <laughs> well done, <laughs> well, well, done my, clue, my clue obviously helped. Uh, it was all, it all, yeah, go on, sorry. In which film, I've only got two more. In which film does someone get killed by a mermaid? Oh, bam. Go on, Dave. It's Cabin in the Woods. It is Cabin in the Woods. I Bradley think Whitford finally gets to see his mermaid, yeah. It's my favorite, I think it's my favorite death in that film, to be honest. <laughs> and last one, um, in which one does uh, the antagonist get an air hose shoved in the mouth, they inflate and then explode over everyone? Oh, I don't know, actually. It is just after they've had, they've been melted a little bit as well. It doesn't sound like they're having a good day. No, it doesn't. I mean, it's, I want to say Chucky, but... Yes, well done, Dave. You get the is point, it... and that one was 50 points, so you win with 50 points. <laughs> <laughs> Giles played I'd seen two of those films. <laughs> <laughs> it was a niche, a niche one, that one, but uh, yeah. No, it was good, yeah, I like that. Over the top quiz. Okay, thank you. Uh, as I've been saying that quiz, I've also been thinking in the back of my head about this film. Lots to think about. You know, uh, Gav was saying there's a creepy undercurrent to the, uh, the, and then, you know, flip into the over the top horror. But Dave sort of said that there wasn't a lot of surprise in this film. And I do, you know, I do, I do think Dave was right on that. Like, you do need surprise. And if you just know that this is a sort of 70s horror slasher exploitation, and it's predictable, well, that kind of takes away a little bit from the from the horror. They've also had a good point about why did, you know, we all agreed that Mia Goth did a very good job, but why was she doing both roles? Not entirely sure. But the actual aesthetic of the film, Ty West does know how to frame a shot, Dave said. Um, it doesn't do its own thing, perhaps, but it's it's a homage to the, to the old thing. I think I would have possibly... Uh, I'm going to say, I'm just, I'll just cut to the chase and I'll say that I'm going to put this film on the hit list. And I think what what got it for me was just that, I think if it had just been a homage to the 70s, then I would have found that a little bit like, what's the point? doesn't really do anything. And I know Dave was saying that, you know, the themes and it doesn't always make sense. But I think the fact that this film did have themes that, you know, it is sort of exploring sex within you know, slasher films, which is often a big thing with The Final Girl. I, I did think that was interesting. And I think the fact that it does enough correctly, you know, the, the gore itself is, maybe it's over gory, but that's what people are going for. And the fact that the good performances, even though they are stock characters, are, are really, really well done. And I think, I just think the fact that, even though it's odd that Mia Goths may be playing both roles, that everyone agreed that she did a very good job playing these roles. I just think it all, it all sums up to a film that's probably flawed, but is sounds very interesting and, and I think deserves to be on the hit list.
Thank you very much for that, Alex. Okay, so genuine opinions, starting off with Dave. What did you really think about this film? I said what I really think about this film. I did not enjoy it one bit. And I, when I first watched it, I, I finished the film and I was like, meh. It was just a very meh film. And then I started to really hate it the more I read about it. I started looking into it. And I am in the minority on this one. Uh, critics adored it. Absolutely adored it. And they're all talking about themes. And, you know, old Ty West is a genius. And it's just basically, if you go on on uh, any sites looking at the reviews or looking at what critics have had to say, there's this huge circle jerk going on about X. And talking about Pearl as well. And, the, and a lot of them conceded that, oh, yeah, no, X isn't any good on its own, but put it with Pearl and it's magical. And it's just like, yeah, but it's it's a film on its own and I don't understand it. And the more I read about it, the more everyone was like uh, banging on about how great it was, the more I started to hate it because I just I, I didn't get it at all. I I see what he's trying to do. And don't worry, he's got these themes. I see what he's trying to achieve here. I just think the way they go about it just isn't good enough. It's not no one's fault. The performances from the actors were fine, as I said, but I think the characters are paper thin. I think it's unimaginative. I think it's lazy. I think it's unpleasant in in many ways. Um, I have no interest in watching Pearl, so I probably never really will get the full picture. I never really will appreciate it uh, the way so many other critics seem to do. Uh, but I really didn't care for it at all. Uh, but like I say, I am very much in the minority. Well, thank you very much, Dave. Uh, so I am a massive like fan of Ty West. I've loved all of his uh, horror films he's made. I've also loved the contributions that he's done to, um, if you've seen VHS and the ABCs of, of Death, he did little shorts for them as well, which I really enjoyed. I even liked his Western thriller uh, in, in a Valley of Violence. So... When I had all about X and I had all the buzz that was going on behind it, I was really, really excited for it. And um, I liked it. I did like it, but I didn't like it as much as I thought I would. I had heard great things about it. A lot of commentators, reviewers, and um, you know, critics that I really like and respect the opinion of. It's all given very, very glowing reviews. And when I went to see it, I was a little bit underwhelmed not to say that it isn't good because i think it is it is good it's just i just was expecting a little bit more i think it's a beautifully shot film i think it's it's got a lot to say as well i don't i think it could have easily just been a very sort of bland generic slasher film but it's definitely got a lot of depth there and i think the saving grace for me is is uh is mere goth in the, that dual role i think she's fantastic in it but I just wanted a little bit more. Um, and, and and maybe you get that from Pearl. Admittedly, I haven't actually gone and watched Pearl. Maybe once you've watched Pearl, you actually get the, a better understanding of the myth, mythology behind it and the reasoning of some of the characters. And maybe you understand the themes a little better. Um, but yeah, similar to, to Dave, I, I was in a, a different minority of people who thought it was all right, but uh, wanted a little bit better. I, I disagree with Dave with regards to like what I've heard from critics was at the time before the the sequel or the prequel was even announced, people were like fawning over this, and I was really really excited about it. I, um, so and I, I and I imagine that Dave's right as well that people have said since, oh, you should watch this alongside it, and it makes more sense because I imagine for me it probably would. But long story short, it was okay, but I wanted more. Uh, so 
Alex, um, higher or lower than our previous film on trial, which was Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which scored 89% critical and 82% audience scores on Rotten Tomatoes? Uh, higher. Uh, it's but it's a bit of both. It's higher and lower. It is slightly lower with regards to audience scores, scoring 75, but considerably higher with critical scores receiving 94%. It's a very, as I said, very, very highly regarded amongst critics and the horror community alike. And so much so that, you know, those back-to-back films, especially X and Pale, uh, you know, talking about Pale being uh, like a, a modern-day horror icon character, which, to be honest, uh, Mirgoth's performance, I think it's justifiable. Anyway, thank you very much for your, your summary, Alex. Thank you very much for your arguments, Dave. Thank you for your arguments, Gav. <laughs> Don't mention it, man. Don't mention it. <laughs> uh, thank you very much to everybody who's listened. I know. Thank you very much to Ozzy as well for just yeah, casually you. sitting in the background and doing us a solid and recording this episode because my, my laptop wouldn't work before. So thank on, you very much, on Katie's laptop as well, so thank you, Katie. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Katie. Um, <laughs> thank you, Siobhan, for letting us use her uh, official work Zoom account. Um, <laughs> thanks, Rosanna. Rosanna's always there for me, so thanks for being there for me, Rosanna. Dave, anyone you want to... Thanks to Kat for being the only one of the four of them to listen. To actually listen to the podcast. <laughs> also appreciate it. Yeah, I'd actually provide feedback. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much to everyone who's listened to this episode. Really, really appreciate you all taking the time out to listen to this. And if you want more Films on Trial content, go on filmsontrial.co.uk. Check us out on any streaming platform, wherever you get your podcasts, you'll find us. And check us out on all the socials as well, our film trials on Twitter and Films on Trial on everything else. So in two weeks' time, we start a new series as we put the films of the one and only Danny Trejo on trial. That's right, we're going from niche to niche, out of the frying pan, into the fire, and we're going to kickstart things with a doozy. Danny Trejo's only leading role, we'll find out in two weeks' time, Machete. We're putting that on trial. So, uh, I mean, prepare yourself, guys. It's going to be a good one. <laughs> Uh, but what have we learned today? Well, we've learned that uh, the character that Rose McGowan plays in Scream is actually Tatum, not Tara. What an idiot. And ultimately, <laughs> that X is on the hit list. And we're going to be back in those ears in two weeks' time when we put Machete on trial. Goodbye. Have you ever seen Shining Through with Michael Douglas? They're trying to get over the border in in Germany during the Second World War, him and Melanie Griffiths. Oh, yeah, I've and, seen that. Yeah, and he, uh, she is fluent German speaking, and he basically isn't. And he is dressed like a German officer, and she's basically going to do all the talking to help them across the border. But she gets concussed, so he has to try and blag both of them through the German border, but obviously he can't speak a word of German. And there's this bit where he's like trying to cross the border, carrying it, and he's getting shot. He's like shot in the leg, shot in the arm, and he's just like crawling over the border, carrying Melanie Griffiths. Like, and eventually he gets over it. Like, but there's that bit where he's just like, there's no way he's gonna make it. That's how I felt recording this podcast. <laughs> didn't make it. He didn't make it. <laughs> <laughs> With three- and then we changed the film and Michael Douglas just died on the border and turned to switch. <laughs> <laughs>